We here at the Making Movies is Hard podcast are very happy that the WGA and the AMTPA have come to an agreement, but the SAG After Strike continues. If you would like to help, then please go to SAG After Foundation's Emergency Financial Assistance Program, SAGAFTRA.foundation forward slash donate, and click the link. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Bissell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker, and my first feature film, The Alternate, is out now on digital, DVD, Tubi, YouTube, all the places. I'm Liz Manischel. I'm a writer, director, producer who has made two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life, and I'm currently making a third, Best Friends Forever. I'm a producer's rep who used to work at Sundance. That's all I'm saying. I, it <laughs> made it seem like I was going to say more, but I'm not going to. <laughs> Good. Keep it to yourself. <laughs> Just kidding. This week, we welcome writer-director Mick Davis on the show to talk about his latest feature, Walden, starring Emile Hurst, which is his seventh feature as a director and his twelfth as a writer, people. Oh, my God. He's worked with actors such as Mickey Rourke, Ian Holmes, Andy Garcia, John Cleese, Kelsey Grammer, and many, many, many more that I'm forgetting. But it was a really fun conversation. After that, we play another round of Ask the Expert. But first, Liz, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. It's Halloween. It's Halloween. I love Halloween so much. I know you're sick and you didn't have the most joyful morning that I had, but I will make you feel jealous. I dressed up both my kids and we got to walk to school and see every other child in costume line up. And it was... Joy. It's joy. Is there anything better than trick-or-treating or Halloween costumes or like celebrating spooky season? I don't think so. I think it's the best. So I feel good. It's pretty great. Yeah, I can't wait until I'm there. I was really hoping that this year was going to be the year that we first did trick-or-treating with BB, but we're all sick. So it just it can't happen. Horrible. Just slap on a mask. Just put a hazmat suit on. Make it happen. <laughs> I, I tend to, it's actually not uncommon for me to be sick around Halloween. This is like not an unusual thing. I wasn't sick yet last year, which was great, but I think like two years ago I was or three years ago, but yeah, it's just one of those, those deals. You know, I, I did get to decorate my house, which is super cool. Okay. We don't do that. So you win, you win that one. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. I got a skeleton. I got uh, cobwebs. I have a huge spider and a big spider's web. I've got lights. I've got I've got two sets of lights. I've got it's red and blue, blue for the spider and red for the skeleton. And then I have purple and, and orange string lights around and like going up and down the spider's web. So, OK, I, I have like, an idea and I have an idea for yeah. you. OK, A, that's awesome. But B, Colin and I used to do fake trick or treating, pretend trick or treating where oh, one fuck. of what one of us would go in the closet and the other one would knock on the door and say trick or treat and we'd give each other. Tre- you can do pretend trick or treating <laughs> in your spooky house tonight for sure. <laughs> we'll see. You have all think, of the makings. I think we might just we might go just, uh, yeah. just yeah. go to sleep and watch movies. <laughs> We've been watching so many movies and I feel like BB is like, oh, my God, we get to watch movies every single day. This is the greatest thing that has ever happened to me in my life. And we're like, look, it's only because you're sick and because we're sick. We're not doing this every day. And like she wakes basically every morning she wakes up, even when she's not sick. She, the first thing she say is it's a movie day. And we have to be like, no, BB, movie day is Saturday. It's not movie day. And then, you know, but the last like four or five days, every day has been movie day. So she's like, she's living her dream right now, but it's going to all come crashing down at some point. It's okay. Live the dream. Live the Live dream. The dream. Enjoy it. 
Yeah, but no, I mean, I'm, I'm doing okay otherwise. You know, I've been emailing people and, and doing some work on trying to get the, the feature film editing thing going. I had a really long talk with somebody that I worked with before on a movie. He's like a, he was a, a data manager on that movie, but he also edits movies and he does the post supervision, post supervision on movies. And then he'll also assist and edit on movies. So he kind of like mm-hmm. does whatever he can and then he'll do color work too and visual effects. And so nice. he kind of like whatever post you need on a movie he'll do. And it was, we talked for like an hour. It was a really great conversation, but like it was very clear that it's not a super <laughs> like in indie film editing and post is not a very uh, lucrative place no. to be, you know. <laughs> like, yeah, no. I think you have to be like in the in the the, the basically like this movie that we're, we're talking about today, Walden. Like that movie is like at the level where like if I was the editor on that movie, like I'd be doing okay. But like right. you have to break above like the one million, two million dollar movies in order to like get there. And like if you're, you know, doing posts on a five hundred thousand dollar or a sub one million dollar movie, it's like you're barely making any money, you know, like it's it's almost not worth it, you know? Well, that's anything in indie film. I mean, like you could True. say that about almost any position of probably any right. position in an indie film. Yeah. But I mean, I think when you're directing a movie for under a million, you're you're getting paid even less probably than the editor oh, <laughs> you know, yeah. in a lot of cases. <laughs> so I feel like, you know, at least and when you're editing, you'll be getting at least something, but it's it'll still be like really little, you know. So I don't know. But I mean, as it's not to not deterred me. I'm still <laughs> excited about it. I still think it's going to be something I'm going to pursue. I think if I could even get one of these low budget movies as my first that would be really helpful to like get a, a build a reel, but like, yeah, being sick, it's really hard to do anything. So I have like 40 tabs open on my laptop of like all these like jobs to follow up on and posts on Mandy to look at and all these things. Apparently a Mandy's where it's at. Like I guess this guy I talked to, he's gotten three features from Mandy. So I'm like, Oh, oh yeah. Okay. Mandy's the deal, a real deal, but you have to pay for it. So like, I don't want to pay for it. <laughs> But he was saying like what he'll do is he'd pay for a month or two or three months and then like take a break and then like apply to a bunch of jobs and then like wait to see if there's anything interesting and then pay for like a month and then take a break, you know. But also, I know you don't want to hear this, but there are plenty of Facebook groups for editorial jobs. So, I mean, there may be something in there, but don't do it now or just go get rest and eat candy (laughs) and watch spooky movies and. My kid watched the original Haunted Mansion with Eddie Murphy the other day and he flipped his lid. He loved it so much. I mean, it's like genuinely, I think we all know it's objectively a bad movie, but he loved it. So let let some like um, mediocre spooky movies cheer you up and don't apply for jobs right now. What what year is that from the Eddie Murphy one? Oh, that's 90s. I'm going to find it. Oh, nice. I'll have to check it out. You haven't seen seen the Haunted Mansion with Eddie Murphy? No. It's got Wallace Shawn in it. Sorry, I know everything with Wallace Shawn in it. So that's just that's on me. I feel like that's good, though, because like, you know, anything with Wallace Shawn is going to be pretty entertaining. So it's um, 2003. I was wrong. It's it's early 2000s. It's it's in that stage of Eddie Murphy's career. Okay, I got it. It's not a bad stage. I'm not talking. I mean, whatever. You know, it's just it's It's his family film career. It's his family film era. Like if you're like talking like late '80s, early '90s Eddie Murphy, like that's like Very a whole different, different Eddie Murphy, different. you know. Yeah. Which I I love that Eddie Murphy, <laughs> of course. Um, but I but I love all Eddie Murphys. He's always fun, you know. Yeah. 
Shout out to Dolomite, the the 2020 Dolomite yeah. or whatever it was. Oh, That's yeah. a really good movie. Yeah. That's a whole nother Eddie Murphy stage. Anyways, I think what another stage that we should talk about is supporting us on Patreon. Uh, if you go to www.patreon.com slash MMIH podcast, you can, you know, give whatever you'd like to keep the show alive. If you put in one ninety nine or more, you'll get access to the back catalog, which is over 350 episodes of the podcast, which are not available to everybody. So check that out. Once we cross over 450 episodes, it'll be even less. It'll be like, you know, four or even more. It'll be 400 episodes that will be behind the paywall. So, yeah, check it out. But without any further delay, here is my chat with writer-director Mick Davis. All right. Well, Mick Davis, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Give us the elevator pitch for your film, Walden. The elevator pitch is the story of a small town courtroom stenographer who is to life insignificant until he realizes that his life may end soon. And he decides that there's been too much pain unaccounted for. And so he becomes a vigilante. (laughs) Nice. I love vigilante stories. How many days did you shoot the film? I think we were 25 days, something like that. Five fives. And uh, if you can say, what was the rough budget of the film? To be honest, I, I've, uh, I'm not sure. They just kept giving me everything I wanted, so it was pretty good. <laughs> so I'm not going to throw a number out there even to guess because I may get my knuckles wrapped or they may say, wow, <laughs> you thought we gave you that much money? <laughs> so... Uh, it was it was good enough for me to make the movie I wanted to make. So, you know, any director is indebted when you have producers like that who believe in your vision. You know? That's amazing. I'll have a lot of questions about that. I'm going to just throw out a guess, five or 10 million. You don't have to say anything. Yeah, That's well, what I would. <laughs> you're, the ballpark is there. You're not far off, I would say. So how was the project first brought to you? How did you get on board and what was the origin of the idea? The project was... My my friends I've had for a good almost 20 years, I think now, Seth and Sarah Michaels are both producers uh, in based in Atlanta. And they had always, we'd always wanted to work together and do something. They came to me and said, you have any ideas for something you'd like to shoot? And I said, well, I've always thought a courtroom stenographer might be a good movie. And they kind of laughed at that because where do you go with that story? <laughs> but then when I pitched the idea that he turns and becomes something else, that intrigued them enough to say, all right, let's go to script. And so I was watching the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial and I saw the courtroom stenographer and I saw this. And for me, I thought, no, that's the ghost of the courtroom. Nobody cares about that person. They're so focused on everything else. Now, I wonder what she does when she goes home at night. Does she take care of the kids? Does she feed the cat? Does she put on a costume and jump off a building and save (laughs) lives? And I thought, I like that. And then the name Walden came to my head and a bow tie and Pillsbury Doe. (laughs) I just saw him as a Pillsbury Doe character that if you prodded his tummy, he would just chuckle. And yet he has a dark side to him. And I thought, that's my guy. (laughs) <laughs> I love that. I love that. How long did you spend on working on the movie from like, you know, when you were first approached with an idea or, or you know, asked what ideas you had to, you know, when the movie is now being released? Ah, OK. Well, I wrote the script, the draft in two weeks. Wow. 
And then after that, we went to casting. Emil jumped on board because he loved the, the script and his dad loved the script and his friends loved the script and everybody told him he should do it. He himself said, I've got to play this guy. I've never seen a character like him. He knew him. He's perfect for the role. And then uh, I went down to Atlanta and set up shop there, started soft prep, got into casting the rest of the movie with all those wonderful actors that came on board and local actors who were amazing, so much talent there. And then we shot the movie, we posted the movie, we got through the movie by... So we ended, the shoot ended somewhere end of July, something, I don't even remember the dates, but then we went into cutting and post, and by January, February, we felt, you know, we were very close, finalized a few things, and then, and here we are. So are you talking about like around a year, roughly, yeah. for the whole so thing? Yeah, a year, a year plus, yeah, a year plus. Oh absolutely. my God. That's yeah. so fast, man. That's amazing. <laughs> you know, it's funny because because I work pretty quickly and I write quickly and I kind of know what I want to do when I'm shooting in that, you know, you, you want your movie to get out there for good or for bad because you don't know how the audience is going to react. You just do the job. You put it out there. You have to love the process and keep your fingers crossed and say a prayer that people will like it. And so you want that to happen sooner than later. And it's taken over a year to get out there. And I'm just delighted now that people will get to see the movie. So, you know, I would have liked to have gone out with it quicker. But actually, I think this is the right time of year for the movie, you know. It's a good time of year for Walden. Wow. So when, when did you shoot? Did you shoot at the beginning of this year or the end of last year? Oh, no, no. Last July. So a year oh, last past. July. Yeah, year past. Oh, uh, okay. Okay. So you're talking like... Basically, the beginning of 2022 is when this kind of all be began. Yeah, Mar around March, April of 2022, okay. uh, when it was conceived and written. And then now we're releasing on November 10th. So you're talking about, you know, a year and a half, probably all, all yeah. in from page one to now. That's lightning fast, man. That's crazy. Hello. That's awesome. <laughs> I wanted to ask about the script. Like, how many drafts of the script did you do in that time was it like a couple or was it like extensive like 10 or do you even remember well this is gonna sound terrible but i wrote a draft that everybody responded to which is the draft emil got and that was the first draft and then from that point on there were just a few changes here and there for the sake of locations to save you know because budget wise so actually we kind of went forward on the, the first draft. Wow. We never went to many colors. We may have gone to pink and blue or something like that, but that's wow. about it. And uh, and then the rest of it was done on the floor where, you know, Emil or one of the other actors would say, you know, I think if I said this, would that work? And I would think, okay, let's try it. Wow. And then that would be it. So the And also being the writer... It's good because, you know, I know the script, I wrote the script, I created the character. And so for me, I'm kind of a step ahead. So if somebody does come up with an idea, I know if it fits in and if it's going to work going forward and it doesn't sort of like send us in a different direction. And that never really happened because everybody was in of the same mindset. We love Walden. We love the story. Let's make this work. 
Fantastic. I'll never forget on my feature, Goldenrod. We got to Goldenrod. That's, uh, I know that's very many. <laughs> oh, that's pretty. No, but you know what, though? That's understandable. I've gone to Goldenrod maybe two, twice. <laughs> so I, I, I know how that feels. <laughs> but you know it depends on who you're working with and it depends on your producers and also truth be told is it just uh, you know sometimes you're lucky and you can just nail it uh, and I now when I look back that had Walden in my head for years and he just came out when he came out you know nice last of the like the Walden specific questions if you could change one thing about the film in any way, it could be process, it could be story, it could be a shot, it could be one day on set, whatever it is. Like, what would that thing be? I don't. I think I actually I would probably make the movie longer <laughs> because you know you've got to you've got to dump some stuff that you shot. You know, for getting the movie out there and let everything else. You know, I learned stuff in my life. That there's there's no point in having regrets and change things because it's now carved in stone, and it's going to go out there, and so you have to accept that and say, okay, philosophically, this is this is the movie that I believe works, and I would have fought for things if I felt that they needed to be different. But the truth is, I am so blessed that I had great actor playing the role. And I had producers who really cared about my vision and bought into it. So, and I've had it the opposite way before, where it's been a war. So this was not a war. This was this was a coming together. So I wouldn't. There's, there's nothing I would change. And even if somebody said, "Well, go back into it, and I'll give you a week to play with it," I probably wouldn't change anything because I'm pretty happy with with how it's came out. Amazing. Could you talk a little bit about uh, your process with rehearsals? I know you said you had 25 days to shoot, but was there any rehearsal time baked into that? And do you like to work with rehearsals or is it something that you are, you, you know, given that you, you did, if you don't have the time that you just, you have a process to work around it. Like, how do you manage that? Well, I'm not one for rehearsals, to be honest, because I think that they can take away from the freshness of being in front of the camera. What I do like doing is talking to actors. I like to go for a walk. I like to grab the actor and say, let's go for a walk and we'll take a walk for a couple of miles and we'll stop and have a coffee somewhere and we'll just talk. And I think the talking is everything because, you know, a lot of what you have in your head, they don't get to see on the page. And so as you talk and and walk, they hear things and then they get to ask you questions. And then you answer those questions and it fills up the blanks for them. And uh, this is my process. And then when you come back at the end of the walk, they know a little bit more about where your head was at when you created a scene, a moment, whatever. And it's the same across the board. And even as the producer said, do you want to block out rehearsal time? I said, no, I want freshness. And also I believe that if you cast it correctly, which is everything, if you cast it correctly, as John Houston said, you, you're just a shepherd at that point. You're just nudging here and there, and you're there when they ask you a question and you have to have the answer. So I don't really, I know that a lot of people like rehearsals, and I think for them it works great. But for me, I like the freshness of getting them in front of it, but it's the talking that counts. I will talk with the actor, even if an actor arrives in for maybe two days of work, 
I will have breakfast with the actor, talk through the character with the actor, tell them where I feel the character, I'd like to see the character go, and then listen to what their thoughts are. And I was just lucky in that we cast this, I think, pretty well. So, you know, I never had too much to tell them. They got it. I mean, Kelly, for instance, who plays the love interest, Kelly Garner, she got it. Shane West got it. Tanya got it. David got it. They just got it because I think on the page, it was very clear. And I think that's where the truth lies on the page. Nice. Amazing. That's wonderful that you get to do that with all your actors, not just the leads. Cause that was like, my question was like, Oh, do you, is that just for the lead characters? But it sounds like you do spend time with every actor who comes in, which sounds wonderful. Well, yeah, absolutely. Because you know, the, the actors who come, you know, that thing that, you know, every actor counts that cliche, you know, even if they're the background or whatever, because they're very much a part of what your frame is. And you want the frame to work, you know, there's nothing worse than somebody walking through the frame carrying a briefcase and they look like they have a pole up their ass, you know? <laughs> so, you know, it's, you've got to talk to people and make them feel that they're very much a part of what you're trying, the story you're trying to tell. So... I had that opportunity to talk it through with all the act- all my my primary actors and and you know have them understand the vision of it and again it always goes back to the script because if it's very clear on the script good actors will tell you they'll say I get it I get it I know what you want here and if I don't know what you want I'm going to ask you and so I was lucky in that sense and again it's talking you know in between takes or setups you're sitting down and the actor will come over and they'll say, you know, when Walden thinks like this, what do you think? And I'll say, well, I think it's because he feels this, but you tell me what you think, Emil. And then you get that from them. And the same with, uh, you know, Shane or, or or David or Tanya. And that's, and we built a trust with each other. And that trust is really what carries you through because, you know, actors are going in there and the the for the most part, they're blind. They're trying to find a character that will work so you don't have to cut the hell out of it to make it work. And uh, they, they, the only safety net they have is the director. And uh, in this case, they were lucky, and the director is also the writer. So serving both both uh, capacities, then they know that when it comes to not talking to the director but talking to the writer, that they have me there to tell them why I wrote this or why it should be this. And I think all of that was was a comfort zone for these guys. I say their safety net became me. Nice. Can, can you talk a little bit about how you handle your blocking rehearsals? Like, is that something that you do just with the crew and not with the lead actors? Or do you like to do, bring the leads in for the original blocking and then, you know, bring the stand-ins in when the, when the crew is working? Or how, how do you approach blocking rehearsals? Well, blocking is a fun thing because, you know, you've got your camera camera going to pick up you know what it's like you know you know this guy stand in front of this guy and move him two feet to the left whatever it is but ultimately it's how you serve the scene and uh, i'll give you an example if i can we had there's a scene in the movie uh, if you remember the elevator scene between kelly and emil where she traps him in the elevator and she starts you know questioning him about his life well Dear of that, that scene was actually we were in a building where we shoot where we shot the stenography competition, and right outside was an elevator, and I was sitting there and I'm thinking to myself, blocking terms, 
Two people in a car, God, how many times have we seen that? And it can be so boring and it takes up hours and hours of time. What if I throw them both in the elevator and create some claustrophobic situation? That in itself was much better blocking for me. So I dumped the car, which was fun for the producers because I saved them a lot of money and time. And then I blocked it in the elevator. And I think it worked out perfectly. That's awesome. So let's go back in time now a little bit to earlier in your career. You know, this is like your, I don't know, seventh or eighth feature, something like that. I know you've made quite a few. How did you, because, and, and then I was seeing, I saw on your IMDb that your first feature that you worked on was something that you wrote, you know, FTW, and then another nine and a half weeks before you started directing. So do you want to just talk about how you kind of got into, you know, this whole thing from the very beginning? Yeah, sure. When I first arrived in town, I'd come here because I wanted to be in the movie business, but I didn't know about film school or anything like that. I'd arrived basically fresh off the boat from Scotland. And my my job in Scotland was I worked in professional soccer as a coach. So it's so far removed from making movies. But I'd always dreamed about making movies. So when I got here, I didn't have the money for film school or anything like that. I st- I sat down and I wrote a script, and I wrote a script called Paganini about a violin player from the 18th century. And I gave it to someone who gave it to someone who gave it to CAA. And there was an agent at CAA read the script and thought it was great. And he gave it to Martin Scorsese, who said, whoever this guy is, you should sign him. And then the script moved around CAA and it landed on the desk of Mickey Rourke's manager, and she read it, loved it, and then wanted to meet me and asked me if I'd come and meet Mickey. And then I sat down with those guys and Mickey beat me off. And he asked me, would you come on and rewrite this movie I'm doing called FTW? Basically, it for 10 years I became, you know, Mickey's sort of actors, but and Mickey started my career. And I was very lucky. And so when the nine and a half weeks two came along, Mickey said, because uh, obviously he did the original, and he said, well, I'm not doing it unless Mick Davis writes it. And so I got the gig, and and that was it, really. That's how it went. I was just, I became a, a writer for actors, you know, working with so many wonderful, act, real good actors. And I learned a lot about the craft, and I learned a lot about the, uh, the process. And one of the things that I asked for was that, you know, if, if I write something and when it's shooting, I want to be on set so I can watch what goes on and, and learn from that. And that that was that was my school. My school was working with great actors, being on set and watching how they work and learning all the tricks and then developing my own style. And uh, eventually, yeah, came what it became. So how did you um, transition from being, uh, you know, a feature film writer to getting the opportunity to direct the match? Yeah. Well, what happened was I had had an idea for became the match, which kind of a fairy tale idea between you know two warring bars in in a small fictitious town in Scotland. Uh, and so I wrote the script and I wrote it very quickly. I wrote it in like ten days, two weeks. And my agent read the script and he said, you know, I think we can set this up. We can sell it. I says, well, I don't want you to sell. It. I want you to. I want to direct it. So if anybody wants it, it's going to have to be with me as attached as the director. And so it went around and there was a bidding war for it. And uh, Pierce, who appears in the movie, Pierce wanted it. And several others, a few studios, who had a deal with Universal. 
they Stigol, who is you know is now passed away, but was a wonderful producer who discovered a lot of. Uh, I mean, he discovered David Fincher. He was a great producer, and he, he read the script again and said, "I love this script so much. I'll take a chance with you as the director." And I'll also give you a blind script deal to sweeten the pot so that you'll say yes. And I said yes, and that's... Wow. So... Can you explain what a blind script deal is? Well, yeah. I mean, what happens is a blind script deal is, uh, from a writer's perspective, is if if people like you enough and have hired you to do something and they want you to do... They really want you to do something and you're on the fence about it, sometimes they'll say, look, we'll add a blind script deal into this, meaning... You know, we'll sit down with you, you'll give us three ideas, we'll pick one of them, and then we'll send you off to write it. But it's a guaranteed job. And whatever it is they're going to pay you, that's a guaranteed job. And that's how it happens, you know? Amazing. And then basically after the match, you just, you know, you're a director, right? Like you don't really look back from that. You can just go on and direct movie after movie. Was it that easy or was there some challenges in getting your next film made? Well, there's always challenges, even if they're small. Because the next movie I directed was Modigliani with Andy Garcia, and it was a it was a period biopic. So as as you probably know, getting a period movie made is 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 almost as impossible as you know ending the war in the Middle East. You know? <laughs> so it, it was very tough. But Andy originally it was Al Pacino who was attached. And then Andy jumped on board and it took us a couple of years and we found a finance guy and it kind of was like a little bit of a fairy tale. He read the script, loved it. The next day I was on a plane to London casting it and then we were in Romania shooting it. And that was one of the great joys of my life making that movie. So there was a little, you know, it was tough to get it done, but we got it done and and it's worth it in the end, you know. And then... um, my father passed away about a year later, and uh, I, I kind of took myself out of the game, and I went to live in Europe, and I wrote a few movies, but then I came back and I did a TV show called The 11th Hour for Bruckheimer. And then after that, I thought, I want to get back into directing again, so did a bunch of films for a producer in England, and then uh, and then last year... Did Walden, and then I did a comedy after Walden, which comes out later on next year. So that was it. Wow, amazing! You kind of answered a, a bunch of the questions I had in that answer oh, at the sorry, end. But, right. <laughs> but I, I mean, coffee time really. Was there any particular reason why, after you did Haunting Char- Charles Manson, that you did some some short films? Was that just because that was like the job that you were offered or was there a reason why you wanted to go to shorts after, you know, making four or five features? I think that some movies are just shorts and they're not, they're nothing else. They, they, they must be a short. And I think that just to keep my tools sharp and also if I've got a little idea like I did with, with the Haunting Manson thing, because I'd always ask the question, what if Rowan Polanski had one day with Charles Manson, what would he do? because he had murdered his wife. And it always begins with a question for me, and then I answer it with a story. And sometimes it's a short, you know, and and that's really all it is, you know. I, I, I don't think about extending it into a feature, or, you know. I, don't, I never think like that. And then I shot a lot of commercials, because I shoot commercials too. So I shot a lot of commercials in Europe while I was there, and, but in terms of the shorts, no, I just, it was just a fun thing really for me. I never, I never looked at them. I mean, I've written, you know, a couple of hundred scripts and 
and there's probably 20 of them that I want to go make that are, you know, horror scripts that I want to go make and stuff. And, you know, these are things that I'm looking to do in the future. But as far as those shots are concerned, they were just me sharpening the tools and and getting an idea out of my system, you know. Then, then after those shorts, you did two Christmas movies <laughs> back to back. Yeah, yeah. What, 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 like based on your your trajectory before that, that seems like a really big, you know, left or right turn. You know, like completely different. What drew you to, to making to directing some Christmas movies? Well, the funny thing is, is that I'd always wanted to shoot a Christmas movie because it's my <laughs> my favorite time of year. And I even told my agent throughout the years, you know, I'll 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 do a Lifetime movie or a Hallmark movie. I don't care. I just want to shoot a Christmas movie. But then as it happened, uh, the producer involved in those movies called me up and said, listen, I've got a Christmas movie I'd like you to do. It has a little edge to it. He says, so I think you'd be good for it. And it needed an actor who brings layers to it as opposed to, and no disrespect to Hallmark or Lifetime. But it just had, you know, a character that is more nuanced in that sense. And who jumped on but Jeremy Piven. And, of course, you know, I was a big Entourage fan and I loved Piven's comedy. And we had a blast doing it because we said, let's not think about it as a Christmas movie. Let's think about it as a story between a, a father and his daughter trying to heal the pain inside of them at the loss of the mother, the wife. And and it just so happens to be at Christmas time. And that's how we got through that one. And then the other one was John Cleese was involved. And, you know, I'm British. So, you know, I'm a big Monty Python fan and uh, Faulty Towers fan. And, and of course, John Cleese. And so I was offered that. And they said, do you want to do a movie with John Cleese and Kelsey Grammer? And I said, are you kidding? When do we start? So that was a blast. <laughs> And I was shooting in a beautiful, uh, you know, mansion in the Yorkshire countryside and had all these great actors. And yeah, it was it was a lot of fun, you know, but, you know, there's more Walden in me than there is Christmas movie in me, if you know what I mean. So do you think the fact that you had just done a Christmas movie was one of the reasons why you got offered that Christmas movie? Or is that just a complete coincidence that it was two back to back? No, the, the producer who I love is very sneaky. Because when I was there doing the Piven one, he said to me, I've got another one lined up. Are you interested? And I said, uh, one is enough. I've got, that's my bucket list, you know, ticked off. And then he said, well, what if John Cleese was involved? So he knew how to get me. <laughs> I said, well, okay then. And, uh, and that was it. So that's how that happened. So you, you've mentioned all these amazing actors that you've gotten to work with over, over your career. What is your approach when um, working with an actor who has like such a, a who's basically a legend or has a, such an amazing career or like a really big name? Like, does it change or is the process the same with every actor, no matter who they are? No, I think you got to get to know the person that you're working with because everybody's different. Everybody has a different approach. You know, Mickey is different from Andy. Andy is different from Jeremy you know, and so on. And so uh, you've got to get to know them. And I think it's really about the respect factor. You come in, you've got to know the story and you've got to be able to listen to what their thoughts and ideas are. And you've got to both say, look, we're in this together to make the best we can. And, you know, you want them to fall in love with you a little bit so that they'll trust you. And then you have to watch, you have to observe 
and you have to get to know or try and anticipate how the process works. And then you go with that, you know. With John Cleese, it was very much get in front of the camera, say the lines, and let John, who is a genius comedian, deliver it with the comic fashion. And, you know, most comedy lives in the big wide shots. So John, of course, being six foot, fucking six foot 14, is, <laughs> is uh, perfect in the wide. And then when you're with Jeremy Piven, you're in close and you're getting that wonderful face of his and you really want to read the comedy on his face. So you learn that. And then when you're working with an Andy Garcia, it's very much the gesticulation of, of Andy, the way he moves himself and the way he carries himself, which is kind of sexy and uh, kind of uh, almost dangerous at times. And so you get, you just have to know the nuance and then, you know, that's what you want to play with. But at the same time, have them trust you and say, I'm going to come straight to Mick because Mick knows what I'm trying to do. And that's it. Do you um, always get to have that that time with the actors beforehand? Like you talked about going on, you know, a two mile walk or having breakfast or whatever. Like, do you get that with a Kelsey Grammer and a John Cleese and a Jeremy Piven? Or does it kind of vary? Like sometimes you just have to meet them on set and then just go and figure out, you know, who they are you know, on the moment. Yeah, it's kind of time constraints, really. You know, it's budgetary-wise, time constraints, actors flying in, flying out. You know, with Jeremy, for instance, he got in, you know, like I think it was four days before we started shooting and him and I just sat in a hotel and we wrapped. We just wrapped away and went through a bunch of things that, you know, we talked about each other. We talked about our past lives. He talked about his mom. He comes from an acting background. We talked about my background. We got comfortable with each other. And then, you know, then if we went for the walk, we kind of knew each other. Then when Kelsey arrived, and Kelsey is such the consummate professional and such a brilliant comedian that you don't really need to tell Kelsey Grammer anything. You just hear he could arrive the day before. You meet him the morning of the of the day's work and you say, okay, so here's the blocking for this, Kelsey. What do you think? And he'll go, well, you know, if I tried this, how do you think? And then you go, well, this guy's done 14 million uh, half hours of whatever on TV. <laughs> great success. I'm going to listen to this guy and I'm going to learn from him. And then when you know there's something that really has to be done, he gets that. You know, when you walk in and you say, I think if you stood this side of the window, emotionally I would get this and he thinks and goes you know what you're right and it worked like that with John Cleese it's just John Cleese is a comedic god and stand back and let him do his thing so yeah it's it that's the process you know it's just wonderful that when you're in this game if you're working with different actors you get to learn different things and ultimately at the end of it all you're just trying to tell a story and you're hoping that people will like it you know you know, I've talked to many, many directors over the years of the podcast and have been on lots of different sets. And every director has a different way of giving an actor a note on set. Some like bring them off and they have a conversation privately away from the crew. Some do it just a whisper right there. Like what what is your process if you have to give an actor an adjustment like in the middle of doing some takes? Like what? how do you approach that? If the actor is in, in the game and the actor's head is in the character, it's best to stay out the way. And if there's a note, it's you, I make it very casual. I will I will actually find a way to get close to them, whether it's just to fix a bed sheet like in Walden, 
before we call action or whatever it is. I'll find a way to be casually next to them. And then as, almost matter-of-factly, I'll say, I'll whisper to Emil, like, you know, when you do this, try, just try this, see how that feels. If it doesn't work, then don't bother. And Emil will just give me a little nod because his head is in the scene. And then sometimes you're you're, you're the other side of a very busy uh, room and the actor shouts to you, Mick, what if he did this? And I will will generally say, great, go ahead and try it. Because I know I can go back to what I originally thought of in the next one. And if what happens with him at that point works, then that's great. So really it, there is no set way of doing it. It's just in the moment and you've got to gauge what the actor's head is at. If the actor's head is totally into the character and cannot be disturbed, then don't disturb them. And what I generally do is let the camera run, even when the scene is done or the, the, the take is done. I usually let the camera run. I'll tell the DP in the beginning, you know, I tend to let the camera run in case the actor decides they want to do something else. And there's a little bit of gold in there. And so when I let it run and the actor gets that vibe, then they know going forward that there's every chance that I'm going to let them play. And I think the actors, good actors need freedom. Bad actors need uh, a lot of direction. So I've been very lucky that I've worked with really good actors. So you, you talked about that you have a, a, some horror films that you want to make in the future, you know, and you've, you've kind of directed across all kinds of diff, different genres. What does your process change when you, when you're in working in a different genre or is it always the same, you know, no matter what genre you're in, whether it's a comedy or, you know, a biopic or a period piece or whatever. No, yeah, my process changes to accommodate the story. Like in the biopic, I try to throw my head back to 1920 when we made Modigliani. I try to I try to envision the feeling and the vibe of being amongst people like Picasso and Modigliani and Diego Rivera. And so I try to have I try, it, it it's not method because I don't know even know what method is, but it's kind of what you might call method directing in that sense to be in that vibe. Then there's you know when you're doing a Christmas movie and at the heart of it there is pain, but it's, a, it's supposed to be a fun time. I try to keep you know I try to keep the jingle bell vibe going, you know, and then uh, you know with the Walden it was very much uh, deep south. It could have been To Kill a Mockingbird. It could be any. It could be Of Mice and Men. It could be anything like that. And so you're trying to you're trying to give the act keep the actors in the feeling that they are in that place. Even if and I told the actors, I said this is timeless. This piece for Walden because you could be actually you could be back in the 1950s here. The clock is stopped here. That's what this place does to you. And so I, I I would remind them of that at times, with the exception of Tanya Raymond, who was playing a cop who came from LA to live in small town Georgia. So you know that's that's it. so you're you're trying to change it up so that you the actors know that you're in there with them in that period in that vibe. Amazing. All right. Well, I think we're ready for our final questions here. So and and. You know, you can answer these however you'd like, but what's the first film you made 
and how do you feel about it now? Like, could be your first feature, could be your first film you made as a kid. Like, however you want to answer that question. The very first thing that I shot, I lived. I was living in Scotland. I was in my early twenties, and I think it was my early twenties. And the the band Police had the song out called "Every Breath You Take." And when I heard the song, I loved the song, but I thought that could be it. Could be a parody to that song. So I wrote a parody to the to the words of the song, and. The B- I think it was the BBC, I'm not sure, but somebody financed the video and I played Sting in the video. I would never get in front of a camera. <laughs> but it was about a girl who goes into an Indian restaurant with a guy and st- she's beautiful and skinny and slim and everything and she's eating Indian food. And the more Indian food she's eating, she begins to physically change. So the song was called Every Bite You Take. And God knows where that video is. I hope it's I hope it's uh, disintegrated because I'm pretty sure it was awful. But that was the very first, that was the very first time I thought to myself I could be a director. And so that's that's the first one. Amazing. <laughs> I want to I want to find that. <laughs> oh, what what's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? Filming advice I've ever received was from Francis Coppola. He came to the premiere of Modigliani and. I said to him before, because he's my one of my heroes, and I said to him, listen, for good or for bad, uh, I've copied some of the things that I've tried to steal from you. And he smiled at me and he said, well, as my father used to say to me, if you're ever going to steal, just make sure you steal from the best. <laughs> and that, was, that was the advice I got from Francis. That's amazing. What's the worst filmmaking advice you've ever received? The worst. Well, I don't, I, it's, that's a tough one really, but I think that I got it. I think one time someone I'd, I'd, uh, I was, it was while I was making the match and someone, there was an actor who was working on the movie who was not, com- he wasn't committed. He just, it was a paycheck job. And he had tried to, in some ways, sabotage because it was the first movie I'd directed. And he himself saw himself as a director. So he kind of tried to sabotage by trying to put doubt in my head. You know, uh, I don't think it should be shot like this. And I think that if you tried this, and I think if you... And it was all stuff that... And I was so lucky because I'd already spent five years working with Mickey Rourke. And if you can work with Mickey Rourke with, for five years, you can handle anybody. And so I gave him enough rope to hang himself. And I took him aside and I told him what he was doing. And he just put his hands up and he said, you know what, you're right. I was trying to sabotage your process and I apologize. And from that point on, we, you know, we got through the process and that was it. Wow. That's fantastic. Tackle it head on. Don't, don't, don't ignore it. Just deal with the issue. I love that. Well, yeah, you have to because, especially with actors, because actors, actors, if you give them, if you 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 give them the freedom that they need to tell the story, but when they step outside of the page and try to either reinvent or bring something that does not serve the story, then you know the only way they will trust you or admire you is to actually confront them with it. And ex- don't don't argue with them because it serves nothing to argue. But explain it, and if they're if they're grown ups, they'll get it. Amazing. Do you have a goal as a filmmaker? 
I'd like to keep working. <laughs> I'd like to, I'd like to, you know, to keep working in the world that we live in. It's, it's probably, I consider myself to be one of the, I pinch myself because I'm one of the luckiest people alive because, you know, the world, the way it is right now with what's going on, I'm very, very lucky to be in this position. So, and I thank God for that, but just to keep working. But the goal is in terms of material is that I've, there are three or four movies that I feel I must make. I must make. And, you know, a couple of them are horror pictures. And so, you know, that's that's my goal is to get to that place. Amazing. If you could go back in time, what's one piece of advice you would give yourself? Enjoy it more. Enjoy <laughs> it more because the thing is, you know, you're – you feel the responsibility when you're directing of the finance and the producers are there and the actors are staring at you and the crews waiting around, waiting for you to call the shots. And, you know, it would, it would be nice to, to approach it with more relaxation and enjoy, enjoy it more. And I think with Walden, I kind of reached that point where I, I, I yeah, I got to that place where I said, I'm really going to enjoy this. Because I think when you're working with people like a Mickey Rourke or a Pacino or a Garcia or a Pierce Brosnan or Tom Sizemore, all these guys that can bring so much, and you're 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 taking it. The material can be yours, but you're still taking it very very deeply. And something doesn't work, it hurts you because you take it personal. But you have to realize that you're all very blessed to be in the position that you're in. So. Just enjoy it more and, and take your foot off the gas and, and have fun because we're telling stories and, you know, we've done that since the cave the cave days and now when people are giving us money to tell stories. So just enjoy it and make sure that, you know, that you accomplish what you aim to do. Awesome. Last question. Is making movies hard? No, no. You know what's hard? What's hard is what's going on right now in the Middle East. That's hard. And when I was a kid growing up and the Irish, the Catholics and the Protestants were bombing each other or killing each other, that's hard. Uh, what's hard is the person right now who is out of work and can't feed his family. That's hard. I wouldn't dare to say that making movies is hard. I would say that they are a challenge, but it's a beautiful challenge because you must always realize that once again, you're in that 1% of 1% they get to do this. So no, it's it's not hard. It's a joy. And then where should people go if they want to support you, if they want to see see Walden? What should people do? And this will probably come out either right before the movie is released or right after the movie is released. Where should they go to see Walden? Yeah. Well, the theaters, I think, are, I mean, if I guess if they look up online and they'll see where it's playing and hopefully it'll go and have a fun time and, and want to see more of Walden. As regards, what was the other part of the question? Regards? I'd like to support you as a filmmaker and and follow and you know follow your films and see your next movies and all that. That's a good. Well, if somebody wants to write me a big fat check to go and make the movies I want to make, then you're more than welcome <laughs> to to yeah, to reach out. Yeah, supporting me, I think, is just supporting the 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 material, the 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 work. You know, I think if people go and watch Walden. And if they enjoy it and they come away, they're not going to think about the directing or the writing of it, and nor should they. They're going to think about the story. And, you know, if they walk away saying they love Walden or should they hate Walden or they want to see more of Walden, 
then that for me is everything. And uh, I've already spoken to a lot of people who've seen the movie now and they say, when's the sequel? You know, which kind of is good because it says that they want more. And it's always good if you leave people wanting. Do you love making movies as hard and you want to listen to more episodes? Jump over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash MMIH and you can listen to the entire back catalog of episodes for just $1.99 a month. That's an additional 300 episodes that aren't on iTunes that you can listen to whenever you please. But without any more blibber blabber, back to the show. So Liz, here is what you missed from my chat with Mick. Wow, we talked about a lot of stuff, but the thing that I thought was like one of the most interesting things was his rehearsal or non-rehearsal process. Uh-oh. He, it's like, yeah, I just talked to an, an, act, <laughs> an actor, director who like is obsessed with rehearsals. And I don't want to say who that is because it's our big special guest for, mm-hmm. I think it's actually next week's episode. It's going to be good, guys. Mm. I, I can't wait for you guys <laughs> to hear this one. But yeah, they are just talking about how rehearsal is God. Like, I love rehearsals. And then Mick was like, you know, I'm one of those those people who doesn't want to do rehearsals. I want to keep it fresh. I don't want to over I don't want to beat it down. You know, I want to make sure it's live and, and, and feeling new on set. So you're shaking your hands, which is great. But one of the things that he did do that I thought was really interesting is he would like take his actor one on one, all different actors for like a two mile walk. And like just go on a walk with them and chat and just oh. talk about the character and talk about, you know, the movie and the story and talk about them and just get to know them and like buy them a coffee or whatever. And just like have a nice leisurely stroll with his star and like really just kind of get everything all out because th- that's going to allow them to ask him questions. That's allow him a time to like fill in some of the blanks that aren't in the script. And it's just a thing that he loves to do. And he'll try to do that with like every actor if, if possible, even the small, the small roles, like any, any, anytime someone is coming in, like he'll have breakfast with them or, you know, set some time aside to like just chat with a new actor just to like kind of, you know, get them into his world of the movie, you know? And I thought that was like a brilliant, brilliant thing and very interesting. I love that. I feel like I've had so many lunches with actors and there's just that staticness to it, right? You're like sitting, you're facing each other. You have to kind of, uh, there's this performative quality to it. But when, but when I do meetings with peers, I always do walks. And I think it's fantastic because you're both uncomfortable and sweaty and awkward and you could be more, you're so distracted that more honest things come out of your mouth than you're expecting. Mm. So it's like, I think that's a wonderful idea to do with an actor. I love that. Yeah. yeah, it was great. It was really awesome to hear to hear that that process from him. Oh, but that sounds like I'm going to segue us to a game question. So <laughs> that silence tells me that it's my turn. So it's not the game, but it's a game that we call Ask the Expert or You're the Expert. We change it up. Sometimes we call it You're the Expert. Sometimes we say Ask the Expert. But the whole premise of this is that our producer, Eric Toms, or Ulrich, or I have, a, have something we want to wax about that is within the jurisdiction of our expertise. And we thought, hey, let's talk about rehearsals and blocking. So, Ulrich, how do you go about scheduling rehearsals or, or having rehearsals before your films? And then do you have blocking rehearsals? Yeah, I mean, I usually don't have time for rehearsals, which is right. like, you know, just the way that it goes. On the alternate, I did have um, the opportunity to do a couple uh, rehearsal meetings with my leads. And it was interesting because th- like we would read through the script together 
And then we would like kind of do some scenes, but that we didn't really like do any blocking or anything because they wanted to like wait till they saw the space, you know, which I totally get. But like, you know, it was funny when talking to the, the, the to like our get, next week's guest, like he was talking about all the pitfalls that you can fall in when you're doing rehearsals. And like, I think I fall, fell into all the pitfalls. And he was like, yeah, a lot of times it'll be it'll turn into a thing where the actors are just going through the script and like picking out lines they don't like for whatever reason. And like, you know, you know, doing little line changes because they don't understand don't they don't understand how to deliver the line because they don't really understand what you're trying to do with the character. It's like that's like the worst version of a rehearsal. And I was like, oh shit, like that's kind of what <laughs> on my feature. Although I thought it was pretty productive because it was like I I really wanted you know the those lines you know the lines all the lines in the movie to like kind of feel natural and to like you know if they wanted to change them slightly to make it you know fit their own words like I was totally into that so I did think it was useful but yeah I mean my my basic rehearsal process is to like let the actors lead you know and sort of like get them together and like you know read through their scenes like talk to them about any scenes that they are, they want to focus on any questions they have and sort of like let them lead the discussion but most of the time I don't get rehearsals, but I, I like to like at least meet with the actors beforehand just to answer any questions yeah. and to like get to know them. So it's not, I don't like just show up on set and then meet them for the very first time. And like, we're like diving right in. Like it's better just to have a little bit of FaceTime first. So I like to try to schedule, even if it's just a coffee meeting the night before or the day before or whatever, you know, just to, to do, to have that. And then for blocking rehearsals, you know, I, I really like to get the leads in there and to like have as much time as possible with them figuring out like what they want, you know, w- how they feel about the scene and like what we're going to use in the set that like maybe we, we didn't think about in our rehearsal or that we didn't know about, you know, and just kind of do it together and let them run the scene and see see what see what happens with them and see where they go and then kind of let the camera like we would probably even blocked out the scene already together. Me and the, and the cinematographer, like we probably already done that and like decided where we thought the camera should go. But like we let the actor kind of take the actors sort of take over and like, let's see where they want to go. And then we'll like either make suggestions to bring them into our plan or we'll me and the cinematographer together. will move the camera around to fit like what they're doing, you know, mm-hmm. but I, I really like let the actors kind of guide that process. And then like, once we have it down and we're all in agreement, then the actors go away and then like the lighting team and everybody does their thing. But is that about what you do or like, is there any difference? Like, how do you approach these things? Yeah, I don't have time for rehearsals either. I think that's why I was shaking my head when you were talking <laughs> about McDavis's process, because it's just like, that's to have the luxury of a choice would be really amazing, right? Like to choose not to yeah. do rehearsals is an interesting idea to me. I was just thinking back as I think I've talked about this before. I used to really want to be an actor. I used to want to be actor for like a very, very long time. And I did a bunch of theater and I was in England doing a few plays. And I remember the director did not know how to block me and I hated it. I felt so confused. And as soon as he told me where to stand, I found the character and But unfortunately, I'm like that director. I'm really lost when it comes to blocking other people and I'm lost when it comes to blocking myself. And so it's one of my weaknesses as a director. And so the scariest part of being on set for me is often the blocking rehearsal because I like am thinking, well, I don't want to fuck up the camera's plan. I don't want to fuck up the gaffer's plan. What if that actor feels like my suggestion is completely out of character? Like there's too many Hmm. unknowns that it really freaks me out. And I would love, love, love to be able to say to an actor, find it. We'll work around you. 
But I always think that that implies to them that I'm not prepared or that I'm not capable. So what I'm trying to do is either take ownership of that and just tell actors, this is your job. I want you to do this. I want you to block and we'll tell you if it feels unnatural or work with someone who's really good at blocking. And I even went so far as I was going to do this short a few months ago and I was like right about to hire a choreographer Wow. To help me with blocking the scene because I was thinking maybe they have a better sense of bodies and movement and I could learn a lot from them and they could help me block it. But this is all to say, like, I truly believe in rehearsals because as an actor, that's how I found the role was over and over again through repetition, knowing the line so well that you can let go and you can be in the moment. But I've never gotten to have them. So it's very hard to say whether they're useful or not on a film set as a director. And it's always yeah. about what your talent wants. Like, what is your, what is, what are your actors, what process do they want to abide by? Yeah, well, well do you, when you, when, like, let's say you do the blocking rehearsal and then like everyone's working, you know, on, on setting the scene up. Do you then go with your actors and then do rehearsals off the, to the side with them? I don't or? have time. No, it's like, they'll be like, let's block for camera. So then we, they, we go down and we do really speedy blocky rehearsal and then they go to makeup or they go to wardrobe or they go to right get a cup of coffee and then I'll go to the green room and I'll see if anyone has any questions, but it's really, there's nothing like a designated time for us all to be together after doing it for camera. <laughs> My setups would take on the alternate anywhere from 45 minutes Sometimes they were a half hour, but usually it was 45 minutes to two hours. So like we, so would, get everybody in, we would get everybody into makeup, we would do it and then we would have time. And so like, yeah. you know, we would just we would just do use that time for rehearsals until they were done and they didn't want to rehearse anymore, which is usually they, they would, you know, they would do it maybe a couple of times or they would like to do it by themselves without me, you know, and like kind of get, get it on their own. And then we would, you know, do it on set. That but sounds nice. Time, I was just like hassling the, the camera crew, like and the AD, like, hey, when are we going to be ready to shoot this damn thing? Like, God, it looks great. Come on, let's go. <laughs> no more time needed. Let's do this thing. You know, but then my cinematographer was always like, no, no, we, we need that extra 10 percent. And I mean, you know, obviously, like, I, I'm really happy with the way the movie looks. So like, I'm happy that he got that extra time. But I, that was sort of my headspace. But I think next time I'll like let it go a little bit more and just like, you know, use that time to be with the actors or with whatever else I need to do. Yeah. Well, I just think it's a balancing act because I've had some actors where they just want to put on earbuds before they, before we say action, you know? So it's like, you're trying to figure out like, am I interrupting them or are they waiting for me to take charge of that moment? And that's confusing to me. Yeah. Yeah. The, the thing I wanted to clarify is that like, you know, when I go into a blocking rehearsal, like I usually have an idea of like where I see everybody going and like how, how I want it to go, because I've usually thought about it a lot. Everything I've directed it like is, you know, something I've written. So I already already have an idea in my mind of like where it's going to go and where I want the camera to be. But like I, I try to like, you know, I'll, I'll give suggestions or I'll like definitely give a starting point. But then like I, le- I really like to listen to the actors because like they might have a better idea that fits right for them or. <laughs> You know, like we're never like I don't ever want to be like so married to the boards or to the plan that we can't just change it to like go with whatever fits best for the scene for the actors in the moment. You know, because I think yeah. that's like the magic. But yeah, I feel like it's funny. I think like blocking is one of those things that you're probably better at than you think you are. Like you're probably a lot better at it. Like you're you're putting like a lot of stress in your mind about it yeah. because 
they're going to work around you like the camera and the gaffer they'll they'll work with whatever you give them and they might even have suggestions like for whatever you say and then yeah. like you know I think it's like you give the actors enough where like they can tell that you're in charge but then you also let them be partners with you at the same time you know I, I totally well thank you I hope I hope all of us are better than we are in our heads but I do think that blocking is a thing where because I did so much I've done a, a good amount of theater and and I think in real life people don't move that much so yeah. when I watch when I'm on a film set I'm like you have to create reasons for movement but it also feels very inauthentic at times so what I'm obsessed with is like why would they go over there that doesn't feel right that doesn't feel real and like how do you create authentic reasons to get people to move so then the camera moves so then you have an interesting composition so that you your audience doesn't die of boredom so I overthink it a little bit no but that's good I think that your head's in the right space because I think you should be thinking about motivation like nothing should ever be just because it looks cool or because that's what's best for camera or whatever. Like it all should be based off performance and like the reality of the scene and the moment, you know, uh, e- even like with camera, like if the camera is moving, there should be like a, a reason why the camera is moving. Like un- unmotivated camera moves, movements are like the worst. And I've seen so many movies where that's like, they just do the one or, you know, steady cam shot just because they want to. And it's like, there's no purpose for it. It's like, this would have been a way better scene if you had just shot it. Like Traditional coverage scene. just so that we can yeah. get in, get in and yeah. cut it up a little bit. Exactly. But yeah. I'm curious what people think. Yeah. What do you guys do? How do you approach it? And you can tell us by sending us a question, comment, or suggestion to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. If you like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at MMIH Podcast, YouTube at Making Movies Is Hard Podcast. Check out the International Screenwriters Association. The ISA is an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers through the numbers of programs they offer, including publishing your logline to the network of industry professionals at their disposal. They have consultation courses, contests. They have a top 25 writers list. Head to networkisa.org to sign up for free today. We want to thank Mick Davis for coming on the show. Thanks to Sam Anaya from Katrina One PR for setting this up. Our editor, Jeff Reimut, for doing the editing. Robert Jones for being the social media maven that he is. And our producer, Eric Toms for being awesome. Thanks to all of you for listening and talk to y'all next week. I got given a baby and now the other one wants to come. (laughs) It's a party. It's a Halloween party. It's a party. Um,